You're listening to the NAGRA Podcasters Network. One good thing about the 60 Scoop settlement is is that it's behind us, right? It's all done and over with. The 60 Scoop doesn't doesn't happen anymore. Children aren't apprehended, right? <laughs> no. That's uh there's actually more children in care now than there was back in the 70s, 80s and 90s. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> In the heart of the One Dish with One Spoon Treaty Territory, Niagara's Sean Vanderclis and Carl Dockstader dish on any and all issues from a First Nations perspective. From pipeline politics to poverty to pan-Indianism and more, Sean shares his concrete curve leg take and Carl gives an urban Oneida angle. You are listening to One Dish, One Mic on the Niagara Podcasters Network. What's the difference between the residential school movement and the 60s scoop movement for some of our listeners that may not know? Well, the residential school, it was a policy of the Canadian government to remove children and put them in boarding schools for months at a time. Uh, a lot of times it was 10 months out of the year. A lot, uh, in other certain, certain situations, it would be day school. Um, but that was what residential school was, to remove the child from their family and put them in, in, a, in a schooling environment that was forced upon them. Some residential schools opened before 1876 when the legislation was enacted, but Canada's official residential school legislation was enacted in 1876, and the last residential school was closed in 1996. Mm -hmm. What's the 60 scoop? Uh, The 60 scoop is when the government um, allowed the policies of children's children's services across the nation to be able to go on reserve and off reserve and be able to take the children, put them in care, and then essentially adopt adopt them out. Um, many were sold. Uh, many were removed when from their adoptions and put into other provinces, other countries, and other continents. Um, so that's the main thing was to it's another forced assimilation tactics so where they wouldn't be able to to find their their communities and their families um so that's t- literally took their identities away so that's policy that started in approximately the 1960s hence the name it, 60s scoop 50, yeah 50s. so it started in the 50s mid 50s okay. but it really made its jump right on 1960 yeah. and then that's that's literally the the name sixty scoop is they literally would walk up or go drive onto reserves see a, a little Indian child that was i guess essentially dirty filthy, and literally scoop them up, throw them in the car, and leave so it's we consider it kidnapping nowadays. Uh, and that's where the, the the name 60 Scoop came from, is because of that. That's awful. Let's go for the racist trifecta of colonial oppression. What's the Millennium Scoop? Uh, the Millennium Scoop is very similar. There's actually more children in care right now. Um, it's uh, children being taken, put put in uh, into children's services, and adopted out, as well as... Um, 
the children going through foster home after foster home, and as well as Crown Ward. We we have with us today special our special guest Darcy. Can can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Darcy? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I'm a no. student. <laughs> <laughs> no, I will not. <laughs> you can't make me. <laughs> well, I'm a student at Brock University. I'm in my uh, fourth year, so I'm looking forward to graduating this year and to start uh, start on uh, some of my dreams that I've had uh, about seven years ago. Um, I work at uh, in Brock University at the Aboriginal Student Services as well for part time, and which kind of helps out uh, with my student budget. So it kind of makes it a little bit easier. Um, I uh, I'm the new uh, vice president of the board of the Niagara Regional Native Center. Ooh, uh, <laughs> congratulations! Thank you very much. Um, and I uh. I do a lot of my work for the community. I've done a lot of work and, you know, where I'm at now, I have to give a lot of thanks to uh, Southridge Shelter. And, you know, that's kind of where I finally found, like, a family. Um, The first time I really had found family, like, within my life. So, you know, and they kind of set the the foundation to where I'm at now. I uh, do a lot of community outreach for homelessness, addictions, and mental health. And I work with uh, the Mayor of St. Catharines, Walter Sensick, on the Compassionate City uh, program and trying to uh, help change uh, help change the way the city views the marginalized community within our, within, uh, our whole community here in Niagara. What would you say is your home community, Darcy? I would say... Niagara region. It's, you know, I, I've done a lot of traveling around North America uh, over my years, and I've really settled down here in St. Catharines, and, you know, it's the first time I have really feel home. Born and raised in Niagara? No, I was uh, born in Victoria. Um, my parents were on the move uh, just because they didn't want us to get taken, and so... I was born out in Victoria, lived out there for a little while, and then Winnipeg, Red Lake, Ontario, and then that's when uh, that's when we were taken was from Red Lake, Ontario. So, what do you mean by taken? Uh, the children's services came in, took uh, myself, my brother, and sister from our family, and then we went into uh, uh, foster care for about six months and then we were adopted off to uh oakville ontario oakville ontario that's that's crazy and and you your family anticipated that it was coming like they knew yeah yeah they actually initially when they they wanted to adopt um so they they came up and seen us over the course i guess of the six months and then um children's services actually wanted to split us up and my uh adoptive parents fought for us to stay together and it it took a series of uh, meetings and then finally they were able to um, convince children's services to keep us together and so that brought us down to uh, to Oakville and then shortly after that we moved to Mississauga Ontario and that's where I grew up pretty much my childhood 
That's crazy. So, so with the the um, couple things that are happening in the news recently, so um, the CEO, I believe, of children, uh, Ch- um, Children's Aid Society in Ontario, has recently apologized for their participation, their active participation in what's now called the Sixty Scoop. And the second thing is being a settlement that's been reached between the 60 Scoop survivors and the government of Canada. So if you could just give us a a define what is the 60 Scoop? What happened? What does it mean to be a 60 Scoop survivor? Well, I'll just talk on my own story um, because there's many similar stories. But I feel that uh, my story, I feel... It's kind of hard to say this, but I feel like one of the lucky ones. Um, you know, these adoptions, you know, it, it might go good, but mainly what happens with these adoptions is by the time the ch- child hits uh, adolescence, that's when it actually really hits you. Um, and many of the adoptees were either babies or within the first four years of their life. So when they get adopted out, it it doesn't uh, really resonate until they start hitting their teenage years. And for most adoptees, that's when everything just starts going crazy. Um, many leave at the age of uh, 12 and up. Um, for me, I left uh, my home at 14 years old, so I've been kind of... Uh, Technically, I'm kind of homeless my whole entire life because um, I never really had settled down anywhere. Um, if you define homelessness, um, that means you don't have an apartment, you don't have a room. You know, if you're moving around couch surfing, that's still considered homelessness. And so, I honestly, I've never been able to keep a place due to I started my addictions at age 14. Um, I had to, uh, when when I left the house, when I ran away at 14, I got into the street life, street gangs, um, a lot of incarcerations, addictions. Um, I think um, my first suicide attempt was at age 16. And then, you know, but as I look back now, what I know that attempt was almost, it wasn't an actual attempt to uh, take my life, but I, it, it was an attempt to reach out and but i i never got no 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 one reached back and i continued on in and out of the um in and out of the justice system you know by the time i was age 20 years old i had already done three years in jail and so when when I would get released, it would be right back to the, the only thing that I knew, and that was going back to street life and getting involved with gangs. And, you know, the, the one thing I think that really chased me out of, uh, out of the, that lifestyle was looking at a 10-year prison sentence. And, you know, I, I was acquitted of all the charges, but, you, you know, the, the justice system at that time almost had me convinced that I've actually went through and did these, um, did these actions and almost, uh, it's weird because I was almost convinced that I, I did these crimes, yeah. but which I didn't. Wow. <clears throat> so you uh, thought you were gu- guilty. Yeah. yeah. I, I was looking, 
at uh, where did I want to go? Was I wanted to go to Joyceville or or Collins Bay? Yeah, and uh, it literally came down to that, and then you know, then there, finally there was a breakthrough in the court where we caught um, the detectives in lies, and then I was acquitted of those charges, and that was heavy enough to where I. I left the city yeah. of Hamilton because this happened in Hamilton. And um, well, some of the traumas that you get from from uh, from these adoptions is I had always moved to my own little corner. I would step away from the crowd, um, you know, always looking for short-term pleasures. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't look for long-term relationships or anything like that. So I, I struggle with relationships nowadays. Um, I became a father at uh, the age. I just turned 18 and I had twins. And then shortly after that, my youngest, who, my twins are Corey and Cody. And then uh, my youngest one is Darcy Jr. We call him DJ. And I had no parenting skills, you know, and which... Uh, I failed my kids, and to this day, they still have a grudge against me, which uh, which which hurts. But you know, it's I I would love to make amends. I'm ready to make amends with them, but they're just not there yet. So you know, instead of really putting all putting myself down on this, I just continue to keep doing what I'm doing, uh, keep bettering myself. Um, you know, help out my community. Um, so, but in time, I hope, uh, you know, I'll be able to mend those relationships with mm-hmm. my kids. We, uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that we've become friends over, over the past several years of, of volunteering together. And, and I believe that you've done a great job owning, owning your life and, and owning the decisions that you've made. But the reality of the situation here is that, um, a lot of what happened to you was outside of your control mm-hmm. and was a result of systemic racism and of a very flawed policy on the part of Canada and on the part of Ontario. So there's, there has been, as Sean said, there's been a lot of stuff that's been happening in the news right now. Uh, but what, what do you think led to the policy in the first place? Do you think that? Well, I, I've done a lot of research. I just started uh, learning about uh, my culture about five years ago. Um, and you know, I, I wasn't introduced to my culture. Um, my father, my adopted father, actually back when I was about 16, he tried to, but by that time I was pretty far gone and, and on a destructive lifestyle. The, um, do you think that there was justification in your removal or do you think there's some other hand at play? Do you think the CAS was just? I honestly, yeah, okay. Honestly, I think it was just another attack on Indigenous children. Mm-hmm. We were, we were okay through the residential school system. It we were there to fail. We were to fail and either take up the menial jobs of society. And, you know, through the traumatizations of the residential schools left everyone in poverty. Because if we wanted to become a professional, we would lose our rights as an Indigenous person. And so we ended up 
with all the with all the communities, remote communities um, that were very impoverished, uh, lack of funding from the government towards the infrastructure in these uh, communities, which led to severe poverty. And when when the government of Canada actually um, and allowed uh, children's services to go go in on these reserves and urban areas to uh, take the children was one of the main things was if they live in poverty, you can take them out of their home. And so it actually stems from a new type of assimilation, a new type of genocide. And it actually falls underneath the Genocide Act, yep. uh, the sexy scoop of transferring children from one culture to another culture, and that is what these adoptions are. Yeah, a lot of people have described the sixty scoop as, as the residential schools, like the two point version of them. So we didn't take them out of out of their families and put them in schools. We completely removed them from their culture and put them in a foreign culture where there was really no connection to to their culture to their traditional culture um and that that's the I, from what i can gather that's one of the biggest criticisms of of the 60s scoop it you know f- from my life um growing up I, I went to catholic school it was all white school at that time in mississauga ontario and you know that's one of the things actually i I grew up trying to scrub the dark skin off my skin because I was different than everybody else. And I wanted white skin because that's what everyone else had. So it's, uh, you know, I growing up as well, uh, I, I actually had a speech impediment. I could not say my name. I could not say my R's and some other letters, which kind of, I got picked on, yep. I got bullied. Led to further alienation. Yeah, and so that's why I did not, I, I didn't do well in school, and that's why I left school mm-hmm. as soon as I actually, I got my grade nine, but I got my grade nine when I was in a youth correctional facility. Mm-hmm. And because I had already left school, and just from my experiences in school, um, that's what, you know, led to me not having an education. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you feel about what's happened in the news then recently? First off, with the apology, did you do you have the time to to hear the apology? Did you look into it? Um, actually, I I didn't hear the initial apology. Yeah. Um, but you know, I I have read into what has been going on just mm-hmm. because I've been quite quite busy with uh, with uh, some stuff, some work that we're doing with the center as well as my, my full course load. And right. Right. And, uh, it's some midterm essays right now. Um, that's, that had to been in. So I've been working late nights. <laughs> that that time of the student, that time <laughs> of the year for a student, right? Yeah, yeah. But I, I have looked into it with the money that they're offering, you know, it's, uh, for me, like, it's not about the money. Um, it's, it's about the recognition of, yes, this did happen because they were denying it. And the government of Canada said, it's not our problem. Mm -hmm. It's the provincial problem. And, you know, with this going forward, it's, it is, you know, a recognition saying, yes, 
this did happen. Um, what's $26,000 or $20,000 going to do? It's it's not going to take back the homelessness that I endured. It's not mm-hmm. going to take back 18 years of, of addictions. Um, it's not going to take back, you know, the attempts, of my suicide attempts, you know. It's, I, I, I think that we need, we need more healing centers. We need right. funding into the healing centers and the $50 million, that, that's not going to do it. That's right. not going to cut it. That's just, especially if you're going to spread it across the country, because every province has had their, uh, the children have been taken from. And fifty million dollars is not gonna help out no. with with uh, finding their identities back, and you know, I think more funds has to go into that part, even for uh, residential school survivors. We need to start allocating all these monies into healing centers, especially in the urban settings, because that's where the adoptees are. So. You know, having funds going to the friendship center so we could have more workers um, to to help uh, help these adoptees. But then there's the other problem on there's so many adoptees that haven't self-identified. There's so many adoptees that are that don't use friendship centers. You know, they're just fully assimilated. Um, you know. A few years ago, I haven't talked, me and my brothers and sisters, um, we're, we're not on talking terms right now due to our lifestyles. And, you know, it just kind of shows of what some of the assimilation has done. I had uh, my sister call me up and she's like, hey, Darcy, you're into all this Indian stuff now. Um, how do I get my status card? Yeah. And that's coming. She's she she's like status like me and but for her she in her mindset she feels less she's white Mm -hmm. there's no connection right you're into all this indian stuff like like you said yeah right Yeah, yeah there's no connection there and it's it just goes to show like how damaging this assimilation is mm-hmm. and it's uh for in a few years time if she wants to change her life yeah where is she going to go to? There's nothing set in place mm-hmm. yet. So, you know, that's where I think the government should really think on seriously on opening up um, health centers, long-term health centers, so we could treat these traumas. Mm-hmm. Um, we could treat the addictions that comes with the traumas where they're suppressing uh, these traumas in their addictions. So it's uh, it's it'll be a long road. Yeah. And and then after they find their identity and and build community, now how about if they want to go back to their community and visit their community? Well, all all our communities are still broken, mm-hmm. and so it's the the government really has to step up on all parts um, for helping uh, the sixty scoops building more treatment centers or health centers um, for the survivors of uh, the residential schools. The government has to start 
putting money towards building infrastructure, uh, water treatment plants, and just within all our communities so we could start healing. Mm -hmm. But um, at this point, I don't really see the government making all those strides. Well, I mean, it must be tough to manage, too, because like you said, the, the federal government is making the attempts to claim that this is a provincial issue, which... CAS in Canada is usually legislated from the provincial level, but indigenous people, unfortunately, are legislated from a federal level, and we are a federal responsibility. Um, so there's going to be a lot of gray when it comes down to the administration of of this, of this money. Um, I, I don't even know where they where they would begin to set this up. Yeah, that's uh, you know I, I was reading one of the articles. I, I forget her name which is from Montreal, and she had a great point on how are they going to manage this money about, is it how hard if they've been into, been beaten most of their life or sexually abused compared to someone that, I guess someone like me that actually did have a, a great parent, and but, you know, even though I went through a life of addictions and homelessness, um, does the person that got beaten gets more than me? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, that's that's going to be, um, that's going to be very, I don't know. Very... How do you put a dollar amount to that? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And now we're comparing yeah. ways of life on, you know, and at the bottom line, loss of identity severely handicaps the person. Well, I mean, assimilation as a whole is is the bare minimum of what happened. And like you said, there's unfortunate things that came along, like addictions and like homelessness and like just wandering down that wrong path. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the one of the criticisms I was reading. Um, there's an article done by APTN, and what the what the reporter essentially said was, although this is a good thing that the Canadian government has taken the time to make amends and acknowledge the wrongdoings, what they have effectively done, though, is now silenced the victims. Mm-hmm. Because this agreement came ahead of the tribunal that was supposed to happen. So at the tribunal, all of the victims were supposed to have the opportunity to speak their mind and and give their 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 story to to the Canadian government. Um, and that essentially is not happening now. That has mm-hmm. been kaput because they've said eight hundred million dollars is is going to cover it. What do you think about that? Well, initially when we went up to uh, we we end up bringing a bus up from the Niagara Regional Native Center to Toronto last year in October. And this was the initial case that uh, <clears throat> Judge, I believe his name is Judge Bibley Obar. <laughs> yeah, I always have troubles with his name, but... Uh, <clears throat> if, you're listening, if you're listening, Judge, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Judge B. Yeah, Judge B. Um you know he had a, he he heard enough and had enough of uh, of the province's uh, runarounds and he sided with with first nations children and you know and then it went around to i believe it was february end of february or beginning of march they had another case and then 
Marissa, Marissa Brown, um, I think she's what the lead plaintiff of this class action suit. Oh, the chief. Yes. Yes. And I, initially, it was I think it was one point three billion dollars that uh, that was initially up there, and that went through. So now I was going going to court again just to see how it all was gonna play out and then i believe it was around june that the government of canada decided okay we want to hear each victim of of, uh each adoptee and and to see if they're credible enough for any um for any payout and which would have been probably 10 20 years worth of listening and so now, of course, you know, coming up, there was the court dates that were set on October 11th, 12th, and 13th of this month in yeah. Toronto. And that's when they came out to the settlement of $800 million. Well, and there, I mean, there, there's a lot there that you mentioned. So first off, I, I remember going with the Niagara Regional Native Center and the sheer power of, of the adoptees telling their story. I mean, above and beyond all of the courts and all of the press and everything. I mean, there were adoptees that were there and they were telling their story and they had a lot of momentum, a lot of public support, and, and they seemed like they're on the right side of the issue. At that time, though, the both the federal and the provincial government were were deferring effectively. They were they were looking to to try and reach some kind of agreement, but it looked like they were also strategically trying to see if the courts would lean towards them or if the courts were going to lean towards the adoptees. So from my understanding, last February, the courts started to put out some statements that indicated that, that it looked like the adoptees had, had an exceptional case right here. So one way of looking at this in the optics is that the government sort of backed into this settlement a little bit. And that really, they, they didn't really have an option because had this had been tried through the courts, it would have been much more expensive and the settlement amount would have been much, much higher. So that sort of begs the question, I mean, how much merit does, does the apology have? Like, was it, you, you've, been, you've been dealing with this for, for a long period of time, right? Do you think that the province and the federal government have always done everything on the up and up? No. I, I think... Through through the main process of this, um, yes, we would listen to the, what the government has to say, but mainly we've already taken action within our own community. Um, so you know, bringing adoptees together here in here in St. Catharines in the region and sitting down and, and just talking to each other because that's one of the main one of the main that that we all uh think is we're the only ones but we're not and now it's up to light and hopefully many more will actually across the province and across the nation where they could start bringing circles together of adoptees and start working through this together um for for us to start healing it's going to be about healing within our own community where we're at and working together as a group and if we do want to reach out um to our communities is that you could reach out together and have the support there because that's the main for us to start healing is building that solid foundation of support and how we're going to get that is having groups um have meeting groups of adoptees um just make some 
potluck dinner and you know sit at sit in the circle and just talk about what we've been through and so they have a better understanding yes they were felt they were on their their own for this whole entire time but you know you're they're not alone you're not alone and you know we're all going to go through this together i think the healing dialogue and talking are all an important an important part of the process I think that if you like talking, you'll probably like what they talk about on this other podcast. Hey, this is Trevor from Niagara Podcasters Network. A healthy community has many sources of news and information. Here at NPN, we're creating locally sourced, locally produced news content, and we're excited to tell you about The Regional, our first program on NPN News. The Regional is a weekly news show that's a political potpourri. It's a municipal menagerie. It is a local smorgasbord of interviews, panel discussions, and in-depth analysis. You can find The Regional by looking for it in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or the podcast app of your choice. Or you can find us on niagarapodcasters.org slash regional. The Regional, Niagara's news magazine, only on Niagara Podcasters Network. This is this has been one of the most one of the most touching and heartfelt episodes of, of one dish, one mic that, that we've ever done. I, I don't know if the listeners can truly feel the emotion in the room for Darcy to join us and, and to share his, his personal story and, and just a piece mm-hmm. of a personal story. You, you would think that maybe it was a story of sadness or darkness, but it's not. It's a story of perseverance and of fighting against the odds and, and standing up for something important. So I'm, I'm really grateful that, that you're here. It's really been an honor to do this podcast with you. Well, thanks, Cara. So. We uh we have a tradition on this show that that we call the traveling thought, and what we like to do is try and send our listeners away with some sort of positive epilogue or reflection on on what we talked about today. So, with that being said, would you like to share a, a final thought to send our listeners off with, Darcy? Yeah, if uh, if, if you're listening to this, and if you're Indigenous and not Indigenous, and you do have friends that uh, that are adoptees, and they feel that uh, you know that they're not getting connected. And if, if you just let them know to reach out to the Niagara Regional Native Center, you know, and we could uh, help bring them into the circle, so we could uh, you know start healing together and just. Yeah, live life the best you could be and the best for your community. And, you know, that's, we're all building a stronger community. I definitely feel the momentum here in the whole Niagara region, and that's where we are going. And, you know, that's, uh, that's key, key for healing. We see a nation that's mourning, but we can only start within our own communities. And, yes. Let's uh, let's let's keep it going. Start within our own communities. I like that. Yeah, that's really good. Carl, would you like to let us know your traveling thought? It it started with colonization. It continued with the residential school movement. It continued with enfranchisement. Next was the sixty scoop, and we have we haven't even talked about how we're in the midst of the millennial scoop, the the greatest crisis of child apprehension in the history of all of Canada. And when you think of 150 dark years, the fact that things are worse now than ever, that's a real problem that needs to be addressed. But the way that you address this problem is by supporting the leaders in your community, people like Darcy that are willing to to rise above that and to take the opportunity to persevere and to share their story 
and to remind us that we have places to go, like the Friendship Center. We can build our community spaces. We can have powwows right in the middle of the heart of St. Catharines if we want to, and, and that's what we're going to have to do. But we have to keep this momentum moving forward. Canadians and Indigenous people have to continue to work together to move forward to heal these broken communities, or else we're going to have a lot more problems on our hands. Well said. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> What's your traveling thought, Sean? This isn't the history. This is this is current events. This is happening now. Um, the '60s wasn't that long ago. My dad was born in, in 1966. Um, during the '60s scoop era, twenty thousand of our children, of our grandchildren, of our brothers and sisters were taken um, from their families and put into a foreign culture, completely removed from their traditional territory. And it is completely unacceptable. Um, again, my cousin, to speak from a personal level, my cousin was adopted out. And she wasn't taken from our reserve and shipped to Toronto. She was taken from Canada and shipped to New Zealand and Australia. She had essentially no connection with her culture at all, with her family at all, um, with Canada at all. She grew up um, in a foreign environment with the different languages and different ways of living um, that are not relatable to, to this current situation. And she didn't have the opportunity or time to, to make that connection to her family until she was in her late 30s, early 40s. Um, so th this affects us. This affects me specifically. This affects this community specifically. And this affects Native people specifically. The government of Canada, the provinces within the country of Canada, all had uh, a really, really strong influence in this. This was a legislative policy that was inflicted and forced upon our people. Um, like I said earlier, this was Residential School 2.0. And I'm sorry, I may be a little off, but your half-ass apology just doesn't do it for me at all. Um, residential schools, the settlement was over a billion dollars. It's estimated that the children in care at that time to current day is double that. So what the hell are you giving us $800 million for? If you're going to give a billion dollars to residential school survivors, there, there should be some relationship there. Um, I think Carl kind of hit the nail on the head when he said that uh, they were backed into a corner. They knew they were gauging the whole court process, seeing where the court was going to go. And they understood that they were going to lose. And that's why they made the settlement that they made. Um, Justin Trudeau, do better. Kathleen Wynne, do better. And listeners, stay awesome. Preach, brother. Preach. <laughs> You've been listening to One Dish, One Mic on the Niagara Podcast Network, filmed right here at the Pop-Up Podcast Studio at Cowork Niagara, home of Niagara's independent workforce. Love you guys. Thanks for listening to One Dish, One Mic on the Niagara Podcasters Network. Your hosts are Carl Dockstader and Sean Vanderplus. Recording is done at the Pop-Up Podcast Studio at Cowork Niagara home of Niagara's independent workforce. Executive producer is Trevor Twining. Production assistance by Daniel Twining. Show artwork by Mitch Baird. Music by DJ Shub, used with permission. If you have show ideas or comments, you can reach us on Twitter at Niagara Podcasts. <laughs>